Today's sermon text is Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, and chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the, and a man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is God's word. Amen. Let me pray for us one more time. Dear Lord, I ask that your presence will be uh, perceptible will be known this morning. Lord, I thank you that you you convey your presence to us through the worship of singing, through taking communion, through our giving. Lord, I pray now that your presence will be very tangible and real through the preaching of your word. Lord, it is your presence that we want that we long for. Lord, I pray that the sin that is in us, around us, attacking us, Lord, that you will show us the reality of it and the reality of your your blood that covered it to take it away. Lord, do a great work in our hearts this morning. For our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I want to talk about love. And I want to talk about the gospel. The gospel is for everyone in this room. If you're a skeptic, if this is your first time to ever darken the doors of a church, the gospel is for you. If this is the millionth time you've come to a church, the gospel is for you. And it is for me. And so I want to talk about the gospel. I want us to be refreshed in what the gospel is this morning. But first about love. Uh, A confession to make. I am a hopeless romantic. In fact, I would probably say I'm probably more of a hopeless romantic than anybody in this room. And have been so since I was a wee little lad. Uh, You can ask my parents. Uh, They were looking at a school once that they were thinking about sending us to. I was like, I don't like these girls. It was like kindergarten. And that's, yeah. Uh, but I've been a hopeless romantic. 
So I want to tell you a funny story that is very, very true, utterly true, um, that makes a point of what I want to get to. So uh, when I was in middle school, I was the shortest kid in the grade. And uh, this was eighth grade-ish, and, oh, seventh grade, let me start in seventh grade. I was, there was this one girl, you know. I say that every, most, most people can think of that one boy, that one girl in middle school, you know, that you just kind of had on this pedestal. Well, there is this girl that I had on this pedestal, and she, uh, she had this scrunchie that she would wear. You know, I don't know if scrunchies are still in, but uh, she had this scrunchie, and one day it was misplaced. Um, I don't know why, I don't know if it was on her desk, I don't know, but I came into possession of this scrunchie, and... Uh, and did I then say, oh, Bess, here's your scrunchie? No, 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 I, I took it. And <laughs> this, is, this is so sad. And I took a scrunchie. I took it to my room, you know, and I, I hid the scrunchie, and I would smell it. <laughs> Who's my, you know, like, my precious, you know, like type thing, you know. <laughs> Dead serious. I'd smell it every so often. And <laughs> where I kept this scrunchie is in seventh grade that year, we, we did pictures against a tree, for whatever reason, and she was against a tree with a scrunchie now, so I kept her picture. You exchange pictures, you know what I mean, and with people and when you're that age. And so uh, I remember getting her, oh, Bess, can you give me a picture? And I took it, and with her scrunchie, I would, you know, have it and uh, imagine and, you know, whatever. And so fast forward, summer going in, uh, uh, summer in eighth grade, my voice started to change, finally by God's grace. And so I was, the first day of school, I had planned this, and I saw Beth. She was, at, she was in the lunch line. I could walk to the exact place. I could tell you where I was standing. And I went up to her. I was still super short. She was really tall. And I was like, she was standing in front of me. I was like, I went, hey, Bess. <laughs> and she, she turned around and went, Robert? You know, was that you? Say that again. I was like, what? What, Bess? But, you know, hey, hey. You know, it was great. She's like, wow, you know. You've changed. I was like, yeah, you know. Uh, and I was like, yeah. He's like, you know. <laughs> so, because you know, at that age, you're so scared of like everything, uh, especially if you're like the shortest kid in the class, all that kind of stuff. Your voice hasn't changed. So, you know, so fast forward a few, I don't know when this was, maybe a few weeks later. It was my turn in eighth grade literature class to read the, the, uh, the vocabulary words. And I, and I was like, you know, you're so nervous when you're in front of everybody. And I was trying my best to read all the words as manly as possible so everybody could hear my new manly voice. And the last word I'll never forget was poise. You know, that you have poise in front of people. It's kind of ironic. And, and I had made it the entire time. And I went, poise, you know. And it was, it was the worst crack, you know. Glass was shattering. Glass was like, bink, you know. Uh, and the whole class erupted in laughter. The whole class. Best was she was there. And I don't know if you, some of you know Drew Holcomb. He was there, and he was, he was obnoxious at that age. He fell out of his desk laughing on the ground. And I'm just sitting there like this, face super red, almost in tears. And then, Bess, she stood up. And she went, Stop it! How dare you laugh at him? And, I, and then she said something like, at least his voice, I don't know, something like, at least it has changed or something. I don't remember. But in that moment, I was just like, oh, my goodness. You know, who do I want to fight? You know, bring it on. You know what I mean? I felt so invigorated, so full of life. I felt so loved 
Because in that moment, I, people, had, people saw me. They saw me in my utter shame. The parts of me that I was wanting to hide, that I practiced on hiding. They fully knew me. And they rejected me. But then Bess, she stood up. She fully saw me. And she loved me. And that, I really think, and we're all screwed up from middle school, to tell the truth. You know, uh, I really think if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be this bored, I don't know the right word, word here, this amazing man of confidence in front of you today. <laughs> uh, no, joking. But, like, seriously, I think that had a big impact on my life. Uh, it was, yeah, I'll never forget it. As humans, we, we long to be loved, right? We want to be known. In fact, that's a question that uh, maybe even right now you're asking yourself. Am I lovable? Does someone truly love me? If they were to really see me, like see me, like the depths of me, do they love me? Or you could uh, phrase it another way, am I worthy of someone's love? It is our greatest hope, our greatest desire for someone to see us and say yes, to say beautiful, to say worthy. But since it is our greatest longing, it is also the source of our greatest fear. Our greatest fear is that we expose ourselves to someone, that we're vulnerable to them, or that we somehow do something that they see us, and then they say, no thanks, and they reject us. And it's even hard for those words to come out of my mouth, because I know for some of you, you have been hurt in such a profound way, because you felt that someone truly saw you and they rejected you. And that, that is the hardest thing. That is a hell on earth, if you will. And so all of us, because we live in a broken world, in a sinful world, our own sin, other people's sin, this happens to us at varying levels all throughout our lives. Whether that was in middle school, whether that was a friend in college, whether it was a stranger, whether it was a parent, whether it was a spouse. We slowly get chipped away. We slowly get abused by people when we expose ourselves. So as a result, we hide. And we, we, we cover up those things that, that we especially think are unlovely. Or we don't fully let people in. We don't trust people. We practice a different self in front of other people. That's social media. You know, that's kind of what half of social media is. is we kind of put our, put our picture, our, our, our videos, our images of ourselves. They want people to say, yes, that person's worthy of my friendship, of my love. Or to people say, whoa, that person's cool. We, it's, just, it's just at the heart of who we are. I would call it toxic shame when we try to hide, when we feel unworthy, when we feel unlovable. What does the Bible have to say about love? I remember the first time someone said the Bible's a love story. I was like, yes, it's a love story, because I'm a hopeless romantic. I'm like, give me a love story. 
It is a love story. And it starts in Genesis. Man, Genesis 2, 3. There's just, you could just camp out in there for a year. It is so rich and so deep. We're just going to touch on the surface today. Talk about just a couple phrases. But it is a love story. We have love found in Genesis 2 and 3, and we have love lost. But let's look at it. First of all, we see Adam and Eve. There's so much to say about this passage that was read. But look at it. I'm sure you, someone said this before, but I always love to say it because, I, again, I'm a hopeless romantic. But you see the first, uh, the first wedding uh, in, in this. This is where God institutes marriage. This is what we base marriage on. And there's so much to say about that. But Genesis 2 is where we get our idea of marriage. This wasn't a man-made idea. This was God-given. And God performed the first wedding. He, he, you know, he, uh, Adam went to sleep, he took Eve, he created her, he built her, he formed her, he breathed life in her, spoke, spoke to her, and then walked her, in a sense, down the aisle, the first wedding procession to Adam. What I am terrified of doing, I've got three girls, and I am terrified of doing that, I'm going to have a hammer in the back of my pants, and when the boy comes up, I'm just going to go, bam, and knock him on the head, because I'm terrified of that. Uh, I don't know why I said that, but I'm terrified. Um, but God performs the first wedding. And then what do you see? The first love poem. Isn't this beautiful? It says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's proclaiming, you are a part of me. You are of me. I know you. I see you. I am, I, I am now incomplete without you. You complete me. I complete you. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What a powerful thing to say to your spouse. The first love poem. Again, much more to say, but let's skip to this last phrase in chapter 2. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That's the phrase, naked and not ashamed. There is, they truly see each other, and there's no shame. In 1 John, I don't know, 4 or 5, I can't remember, it says, perfect love cast out fear. That they're in each other's presence, and there is no fear. Because there's love. There's no sin in their life. There's no selfishness. There's no outside brokenness, outside sin coming into their life. So when they look at each other, there's absolute joy, absolute beauty, absolute goodness, naked, and no shame. And this is God's design of marriage. This is God's design of friendship. This is God's design of a relationship. No barrier, fully known, fully loved, brought together by God. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, it's beautiful. But the beauty is broken. The love is lost. That's what we see in Genesis 3. God's enemy, Satan, enters the garden, where Adam was supposed to guard the garden. 
but he fails in that job. And this, this creature comes in who's, who's crafty. He's different. And Adam doesn't do anything about it. And then he starts to lie to them, to, to Eve. Who, and Adam is right there with her. And he starts to lie and, and, and contradict God's word. And they are tempted by, by, the, by, the, by, the, by the sin, the evil coming upon them, but then by the evil in their own heart, as it says in James. And they, and they reject God. They, they, they go their own way. They want their own way. And they reject God's way. And sin enters the garden. Sin enters the world. And it says this, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So as you see, immediately, sin enters the garden. What do they do? They cover up. They cover up. And then also that was read, I'll read again. It's, you know, God comes to them, says, what's going on? He says, uh, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said to the woman, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So it's the blame game, the first marital fight. It's the woman's fault. Sin enters the garden. They cover, they hide from each other. And they, and they, and they fight. The relationship's broken. And marriage relationships have been broken ever since. Because of sin. Because of the evil from without and the evil from within. Immediately their nakedness turns into shame. Adam and Eve's relationship is broken. They desire to be fully known and fully loved, but now it's impossible because of sin. And that is the same with you and me. It is impossible for you and I to have a perfect relationship, to, be, to fully know each other and to fully love each other because of sin. But this is a love story. And the bride that was lost is the bride that is found. And that is the story of the rest of the Bible. Because what we see here with Adam and Eve's relationship, it is just a metaphor, if you will, of the greater cosmic panoramic relationship between them and God, between you and God, between me and God, between a broken bride and the glorious heavenly husband. Because we see in, in Genesis 3 that when their uh, sin happens, it's not just their relationship that is broken, right? It is God. So what do they do? They clothe, they clothe themselves up, and then they hide because they heard God. They're not just hiding from each other. Ultimately, they're hiding from God. They can no longer stand before God naked and unashamed. They're saying, God, don't look at me. Don't you see that I've rejected you? I'm a sinner. Don't look at me. And because of sin, no one in this world can stand before a holy, righteous God, naked and unashamed. Naked with no fear. Because he is a holy, perfect, pure God. And by definition, sin is not a part of his equation. That's what it means by his glory is so far above us. He is, he is so far removed from sin and from, from brokenness. So none of us can stand before God naked and unashamed. 
Do you feel that right now? That is the question. Do you believe that there is a God in this church? We believe that there is a God. We believe that he exists. This isn't just us whipping ourselves up to emotion to figure out how to better deal with our crummy lives. That there is a God and that he is holy and that he judges sin. Do you know that before God, you, he sees your sin? I was just, I've been in 1 Peter all the past several months. And I just kept seeing these phrases about that we live life in front of God. And it was, it was scary almost. You know, the, the picture I had in my mind, if you've ever seen, uh, read or seen the movie, The Lord of the Rings. Constantly throughout all the, the, all the whole three series, the whole three books, is, there's this, all this, this evil eye from Mordor, which is the evil place. And there's this eye that is searching for Frodo, who's wearing this ring that controls the fate of, of the world. And the evil eye wants... I'm trying to explain to you the, this whole... I don't, it's like, why well, don't I need to explain to you this whole story? I apologize. But it's this evil eye. Frodo keeps seeing this evil eye. And he knows if it sees him, he's going to get found out. And it's just this, this heat that generates from this eye. It's the sense of, whew. And I'm really careful for that analogy. To say this, I know. In one sense... God is not an evil eye, but God is watching, okay? I would do a disservice to you. No, 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 no. I would do a disservice to God if I did not say that God is a holy God that judges sin. I do not apologize for that. I cannot apologize for that. I'm constrained by the glory of God not to apologize for the fact that he is holy and that he judges sin. And that when he sees your sin, there is a wrath towards that sin. If I do not preach that, then let's just throw the Bible out. I have to say that. But here's the good news. (laughs) Come on now. Get to the good news. Man, get to the good news. Enough of the evil eye. I don't want the evil eye either. Here's the good news. God doesn't have an evil eye. He has a loving eye. Because when he saw Adam and Eve sin, he wasn't like throwing down like Zeus from the Greek mythology, throwing down his thunderbolts ready to kill him. He loved them. It was his people. He created them. It was his bride. He loves them. When he sees you in your sin, he loves you. He fully knows you and he fully loves you. That's all I got to say this morning. This is the good news. When you hear the word gospel, we preach the gospel. The gospel means the good news. And for there to be good news, there's got to be bad news. But praise God for the good news. That God sees you in your shame. He sees me naked before him in my shame. But here's the cool thing. Do you know where the, how, how, how shame, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, when it talks about the word naked? So Genesis 2, naked, unashamed. Sin of Genesis 3. From Genesis 3 through the rest of the Bible, the Old Testament, nakedness is always associated with shame or, or, or uh, sin. Or guilt. It's a negative connotation. Nakedness is always a negative connotation. 
But do you know where that is turned around? The cross. The cross. Because we have a Savior. When God saw Adam and Eve, He had already planned this. God has a plan. He had a plan to show His glory through loving us. He says, I'm going to send my son to these sinners. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is God who became a man, lived a perfect, holy life. And all throughout his life, specifically the last three years of his life, he taught and said, I am your savior. I am God that has come to save you from your sin, to take your sin away. And so when he went to the cross, he went towards the cross. Go to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12. What does it say about the, what does it say about the cross? About what Jesus did when he went to, when he went to the cross? Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 too, it says this, it says, uh, talking about having faith, looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when Jesus went to the cross, as we know, when, when historians have studied the crucifixion, that what the crucifixion is all about is to basically bring shame and, and guilt and, and reduce these people that are being crucified to a, a, a disgrace. To be a puddle of blood in disgrace, naked, that they stripped them of their clothes. And they hung them up for everybody to see and laugh at them and mock them. And what does Jesus say that why he went to the cross? Out of joy, when he walked to that cross with the, with the cross on his back, and he went there with every step with joy. With joy. Why? Because he saw the shame of the cross and he laughed at it. What was meant to laugh at him, he turned it around and laughed at the shame. And the shame that, that where we stand before God, naked and shamed, was turned around because God became naked and unashamed for us. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. There's not a greater story, love story, than that. God, before the world, stood naked and unashamed. For you. For joy. Wow. I'm a hopeless romantic. Not because I love love. Earthly love. I'm a hopeless romantic because my heart is captured by this love story. But what else did Jesus do on the cross? There's more to this word shame. And it's just, got, it's just fun to talk about. So go to Colossians 2. Colossians 2. Colossians 2, starting verse 13, it says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses, dead in your sin, and in the uncircumcision, uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
So get the picture in your heads. What's happening? What's what's happening from from a spiritual cosmic standpoint? It says Jesus went to the cross and it says God nailed the record of debt that stood against people. He nailed it to the cross. But everything that you try to hide or that you're just living blatantly in front of anybody with your sin, whether you're hiding it or not, that sin, that's a record of debt against you before a holy God. And that record of debt, that sin stands before you and God. It separates you from God, from an eternal life with God. And it says what Jesus did when he went to the cross, he stood up on the cross, and God the Father took that record of debt, put it in Jesus' hand, and he nailed it to the cross. That's just, that's a powerful image, is it not? And then what did Jesus do? It says when he did that and he bled over it, He took the principalities and the evil and he exposed them to shame. He shamed the great shamer. Imagine at that moment, Satan was probably dancing on Jesus' grave. He was so excited. He's like, I finally beat God's plan. I brought the son of God to shame. He was probably laughing all with his demons and the demonic forces. But Jesus ain't no fool. He shamed them. And what that, that picture is, what, what, what we, you know, when we learned from the history books from back then, when, when a, a people group would conquer another people group, what they would do is they would then, uh, after the, when they would, came home to celebrate their victory, they brought those that they beat and they opened, you know, in an open procession, led them through the streets while all the people laughed at them and said, you are now a conquered people. And is it, is it the walk of shame? And that's what Jesus did to Satan. Jesus ain't no nice guy. He's making fun of Satan. He's laughing at him. He proceeded in this open profession. Jesus is laughing at them. Says, you think you beat me. You think by the cross you killed me. But by the cross I beat you. By the cross I won back my bride. For you. Jesus did that for you. Do you believe that? Do you accept that? So it says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So because sin, the power of sin, the punishment of sin, the penalty of sin has been taken away, I stand before God naked and unashamed. I can say, God, here I am. See me, God. Here's, every, here, here's everything bad about me. Here's everything that I hide. Here's everything I'm, I feel unworthy about. Here I am, God. And, and as uh, Jeremy was saying this morning from the song that we sang, we're running into the presence. I don't have to crawl into the presence of God out of shame. I run out of sonship. Because God said, you have faith in Christ. You are my son. If you've ever seen any of my children run to me, come to me, they see me, especially the little Mason. Mason's my little uh, uh, year and a half old boy. Watch him when he, when he runs. Or this happens with any dad. Mason's just not going, oh, hey dad. At this age right now, he just starts squealing. And he runs towards me. It is the greatest feeling in the entire world. And I pick him up and I hold him because he's my son. If you put your faith 
in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're running to God because there's no shame. No shame. Fully known and fully loved. Romans 5, 8. It's up on the screen. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. You've heard it said before, Christ doesn't wait for you to get cleaned up. He looks at you in your shame and your sin and says, I love you now. He went to joy. He went, he went to the cross with joy. It was a second wedding procession, if you will. But this time the groom's going to the bride. Imagine myself. Imagine the scene. Imagine being you standing at the cross. Abused by others, self-harming your own self, the sin and the brokenness of the world on you, bloody and beaten, and you're at the cross. And there comes Jesus Christ walking towards you with joy on his face. Man, that's that's that captures my heart. I live for that. So where are you at this morning? Let me tell you a story that I heard uh, of this. It was a similar, that's why I, it's, it hit me because it's similar to my story in one sense. There was this girl in middle school and she uh, was the unpopular, the unlovely girl that got made fun of all the time. And there was one particular day when the teacher went out of the classroom and one of the, the cooler kids thought it'd be a real good laugh if they made fun of this girl and said, hey, let's, let's everybody go up to the board and write down something we don't like about her. And they started to write down, she's too fat. She's too, too many freckles. Her laugh is weird. Uh, she smells. Her clothes are whatever, you know, and started listing all these things. And they're all getting a big kick out of it. And there she is just, oh, can you picture it? Just the shame she feels, the, the unworthiness. And as the story goes, that fast forward 30 years later, and this, this, this lady has been in counseling for years because of the toxic nature of what happened to her on that day and, and throughout her school career. She's talking with her Christian counselor, and, and, and they've been having all these meetings and been just struggling through this. She says, uh, you know, girl, I want you to go up, and I want you to... to I want you to relive that moment. We have to relive this moment. She's like, please don't make me relive that. No, no, you need to do it. Go up there. Here, here use, use my little board in my office. What, what was it like? So she relives it. She gets up and she starts, she remembers every word. She's just writing it all down. She's in tears. She just, she remembers it all. She hears the laughs. She remembers it all. And she just collapses. And her counselor comes up to her and says, honey, this is what you need to see. And the counselor takes the pen, says, this is what Christ believes about you. And writes in these big letters, M-I-N-E, mine. She looks up at that with tears in her eyes and just says, mine. Mine. That Jesus sees, sees you. And he says, mine. Mine. We search our entire life for somebody to say mine. 
And Jesus says, mine. And he takes us as his bride. And he loves us. And he doesn't just take our sin and love us in that. He doesn't leave us in our sin. He takes that away. He purifies us. It's an ongoing process for us while we're living in this body, in this flesh. But he already sees us as beautiful. Because he already paid the penalty of that sin on the cross. But as we see these these pictures of, of the new heavens and the new earth someday, we get this picture that in heaven that we are we're clean. We have the righteousness of God, of, of Christ. And that we are his for all eternity. Are you captured by that story? Are you captured by this love? Do you believe this? This is the gospel. But maybe for you, maybe you've been a Christian most of your life. Do you believe this is true of you today? First of you, do you believe this of you that when we sing these songs, do you feel that power of God's love for you, the sinner? Do you feel clean? Do you feel naked and loved? Totally known and totally loved before God. Do you feel that now? Because that is true of you through faith in Jesus Christ. Today, it is true of you. And for some of you that maybe has been a believer your entire life, you need to be reminded of that this morning. For you to feel loved. And then also, if you're the believer, that should, in, should, should inspire you to how you see others. Maybe you have a spouse that you need to readjust the gospel lenses on your brain, on your mind, and see them with gospel love. To fully see them in all their mess and fully love them. Or it's your child. To know them and love them. That is gospel love. For some of you, you might not be, you might not believe in this. Maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're a doubter. But I wholeheartedly believe with every ounce of my body that God is speaking you today, looking you in the eyes and saying, I love a sinner just like you. This gospel is for you this morning. It is for you. Do not doubt that. Do not doubt that God is a sovereign, planning God that had you here this morning And maybe you've been in church your whole life, but for whatever reason, your heart is awoken to the beauty of the gospel this morning. And God's saying to you, I love you in your sin. And Christ bled for it. And there's a response for you. What the Bible says is repent, believe, and be baptized. 
Acknowledge your sin before God. And say, God, you got it. Will you take that away? Believe in Jesus to save you from that sin. Believe that he is the Lord of this universe. That when we walk around, when we drive around this universe, that there is a Lord over it. Is it not so hard, the lives that we live, because we're just so earthly? We just forget that there is a Lord over this universe and that we are spiritual creatures. So believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, and be baptized. We had a baptism service two weeks ago, and it was beautiful. Young and old, it was beautiful. Baptism is the public profession of your love story with God. To say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I want everybody to know it. Unashamed. Unashamed. After our service today, if you, if you want to ask questions, if you want to say, Robert, plead with me before God this morning, I'll plead with you. We'll have other leaders up front that you can talk to, that'll pray with you, that'll listen to you. That can be the physical presence of God in your life and hug you and say, God loves you. God forgives you through faith in Jesus Christ. I plead with you this morning, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ today. He is a bloody and beautiful Savior who loves you. For His glory. Amen. Let me pray for us. Dear God, dear Father, thank you that I can call you Father. Thank you that I can run to you. There is no sin. There are no stumbling blocks of shame in my way. I can run to you. Lord, all the stumbling blocks that are in people's way this morning, just start destroying them in their heart and in their mind. Show them that they can run to you. That you're a father with open arms, searching, waiting, looking for them, looking for the prodigal son that has wandered away. Lord, I pray that the sinner comes to you this morning. Oh, God, please. Lord, may you use this church, God, to stand unashamed in this city to love, to love, to proclaim the good news and love those that are broken to love each other. Lord, I pray for anybody right now, Lord, that, that, has a, that has a problem with someone in this room. That there is sin that is separating them. Whether it's their own sin or the other person's sin. Lord, I pray that they will apply the gospel love of, of, of you to that this morning. 
And they will know that that sin has been, has been paid for. We don't need to exact punishment on each other because you did that on your son. So Lord, I pray, pray for renewed and restored relationships in this room. What humility it must have been for the Savior and the Prince of Heaven to walk naked to the cross. What humility. Oh, Lord, give us the same humility to walk to each other in love and forgiveness. To a spouse, to a friend, to a child, to a co-worker. And Lord, I do pray for, for that soul that is not repented and entrusted in you, that has not experienced true life in you. Lord, come before them right now. Look at them with your loving, pure, and holy eyes and proclaim your love over them in Christ. Oh, we worship you, God. Oh, we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.